Chiquero. So unfortunately, we have some somber news to start off the the show. Deb Napier, who we have mentioned multiple times on the show, passed away a few days ago. She was such a fan of the show and such a wonderful friend. And I met her working at a theater company and it was a terrible theater company, but the two of us were not terrible. So usually whenever you're in that situation, you gravitate towards each other. You're not a shit show. Hey girl, what's up? And she was brilliantly talented actress and writer and to know her was to love her. She had this larger than life personality and she suffered no fools at all. (laughs) She did not. She was born without a single fuck and she had the most infectious laugh that I remember we were doing a show together. It was like a comedy sketch comedy thing. And we were all at a friend's place and we were all rehearsing our scenes and our lines. And, and she was on book for a scene that she wasn't in, but I was in and she just her fucking laugh was just, it was impossible not to laugh when she was laughing. So it became a thing that we started rehearsing with her in the room so that we could become desensitized to the laugh. And it's like (laughs) impossible. It's infectious. There's no way to resist it. Girl, it was so hard. Like if we got to that point, then it's like, good, we're fucking solid. Like literally a fucking tornado can tear through this theater while we're doing this. And we're not going to budge. We're going to like, we're going to nail this shit if we can get through Deb's laugh. And she just was super ride or die. And she loved the show so much that Anytime I was out with her and like we would meet someone, she'd be like, do you know she has a podcast? It's really good. Like, and then she would like have you take out your phone and follow it right there in front of her. You know, she's just super ride or die. It just, she was the fucking best. We went to like the haunted house together and she protected me and Monique from all of the people jumping out at us and literally like- From little magpie. Yes. And literally like laughed in their face (laughs) because she was- the bravest person I've ever met, clearly. And she would always remind us that we forgot to introduce the podcast because we constantly forget to introduce the podcast. Yeah. And she was just, just an amazing, vibrant, vivacious person who had a lot of love and a lot of life left in her. So to say that she will be missed is a profound understatement. Yes. So for Deb, this is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. I'm Amy Traden. Oh, Deb, we'll miss you so, so, so much. And our lives will never be the same. But I hope we see each other in the next life. Yep. Maybe we can all be sisters together. That would be amazing. <laughs> can you imagine? Oh my God, the shenanigans girl. Oh girl, I so I was fortunate enough that I was able to see her before she passed. She was uh, unconscious and she was on life support. But I did get to talk to her, you know, and uh, <laughs> uh, I did give her permission to haunt me. I didn't want to speak for Amy, so I did give her permission to haunt me um, because I know she would love that. I haven't heard from her yet, but she has permission. She has expressed verbal permission from me. So I'll keep you guys posted if she shows up. <laughs> oh my God. If that's happening, we're I'm coming over and we're getting the Ouija out fucking immediately. Girl, absolutely. Oh my God. Also, I would like to take a second to thank Amy because the only reason the episode went out last week is because of Amy. Aww. I was in the hospital and she did everything. She she did everything. She everything. I, I was like, girl, this is what's happening. I can't do this. Uh, and and if, if you can't do it, that's cool. We have to push the episode. And Amy, without a fucking second, a second beat, she did everything. And got you, girl. Uh, 
Of course. Partners in true crime. Thank you for being my partner in true crime. Thank you for being the incredible human being you are. And thank you for being my psychic sister. I love you so much. I love you so much. Thank you. I did the thing that you usually do every week. So (laughs) thank you for doing it literally every other single time. And I just like came in at the last minute and was like, hi. Oh yeah, I can help. Clutch as fuck though. (laughs) I tend to to be there in a pinch. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Uh, But yes is a sad week but we are powering through and we are gonna try to lift everyone's spirits despite this very heartbreaking news i had considered canceling this week's episode but i knew deb would have been pissed Uh. i thought about that too i almost asked you and then i was like no i was like we should do it for deb yeah and the last she used to text me after after listening to every episode her thoughts and the last one she listened to was Hell is an MLM, which is one of my new favorites. So it's really... It's one of my favorites. It's so good. I'm really glad that that's the one. That's the last one she got to listen to. Me too. Yeah. The fucking FedEx Kinkos girl had me dying. <laughs> Could not. No, literally, that was like... I was looking back at her text messages and she was like, I was losing my shit with the FedEx Kinkos. <laughs> so fucking funny. Crack me up, girl. So yeah, so I don't know if I'll be able to keep calm, but we will carry on. So we're going to go on, continue with the app. Uh, but before then, is there anything like not horrendous that happened to you this weekend or, or you did this weekend? I worked this weekend. There were five Cirque du Soleil shows at EBS Arena. So I worked all of those and I actually did get to sit and watch the show. It was very impressive. Mm. I love some acrobatics and like gymnastics and fucking trapeze work. Fuck yeah. That being said, it was on ice. So while everyone was fucking dying of the heat wave that was in New York City, I was literally wearing like yes. a shirt and a sweater and a jacket. And I was complaining about how cold it was still. The AC at one of my bars is not working. <gasps> so. Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah. I would literally 180 right back out the door. Oh, 53 people did do that. I believe it. I believe it. If there's enough fans, I can like maybe tolerate it. Mm, No, girl. And people were like, it's so hot in here. I'm like, bitch, I've been here since 3 p.m. I know. I've been here for 12 hours. Yeah. And you're like sitting and relaxing. You're not walking around having to fucking like do things. So... Yeah. And it's not even just like walking around at my job. You basically like are a hype person. So I'm like dancing around, I'm singing, I'm getting other people to sing. It's like, it's a whole like cardio workout. Girl. (laughs) It it was, it was Bikram pocket bar. (laughs) I literally would have had to like been carrying around a sweat rag because I just would have been like drenched constantly if that was me. I was like, well, that sounds brutal. Don't envy that. I hope they get their AC fixed soon. Girl, we're trying to like talk to our boss. I mean, my boss is amazing, but like multiple people need to get involved to to make this shit happen. I could understand that. Have you seen Nope yet? No, I'm trying to go see it tomorrow, I think. I did check out the new Alamo Draft House that they opened in Staten Island, though. Mm. But I saw Thor because it's been out for quite a while and I still hadn't seen it. So I saw Thor Love and Thunder. But Nope is definitely on my list and I want to see it next because I've heard such great things. 
So everyone on the Book of Faces is saying that this is Jordan Peele's best movie. <gasps> okay. Which is some shit. That is some shit. Those are big words. So. Yeah. And like people being like, I completely agree. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck? So haven't seen it yet, but definitely got to do an Alamo Draft House date to go check it out. Girl. Girl. I'm totally down. I always, I feel like when people hype up a movie a lot to me, I'm always disappointed. So even though I'm really hyped for this, I'm going to go in with super low expectations because then I'm always like pleasantly surprised. I'm like, oh, that was, that was much better than I thought it was going to be. 10,000%. Wasn't that a Matt TV skit? Lowered expectations. I don't remember that, but I fucking <laughs> loved Mad TV. And I used to watch it all the time. Girl, same. And I still quote Stuart to this day and like still <laughs> send my parents like, Stuart, stop. Look what I can do. Like I still send my parents like Stuart gifts to this day because applicable in my life. It's wonderful. Yes. No, my parents have no clue who the fuck Stuart is. They barely know who I am. <laughs> Of course not. No. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I fucking love you, dude. Uh, that's okay. I know who you are, and uh, clearly that's the thing that matters. Obvi. Obvi. I don't usually spoil movies, but I kind of want to spoil the post credit scene for Thor, and I kind of want to. Spoil it. I don't give a shit. Just forward, forward it a little bit. I know you don't care. That's why it's amazing. Yeah. So if you haven't seen <laughs> Thor yet and you give a shit about the post credit scene, I'm about to spoil it. So you might want to skip forward 30 seconds starting now. Fucking Marvel reveal. Roy fucking Kent is going to play Hercules <laughs> and is now part of the MCU, girl. Literally. I know. Literally in the middle of the theater, he came on the screen and I was like, Roy fucking Kent. <laughs> I know. I lost my shit too. Sploosh City. Now you're excited for a Marvel movie. I did it. You're welcome. <laughs> Never thought I'd see the day, but... Girl, you fucking did it. You're like magical. I mean, we already knew that, but like, I didn't know anyone could ever get me excited about a Marvel movie that, that wasn't Iron Man, which was like 15 years ago. I know, but you like... Of course you do. I know. That's such a great Marvel movie though. Yeah. There's no judgments for that. Oh my God. So good. Still stands up. Yeah. It's, oh God, love. Which speaking of things I love, I started rewatching Outlander because I've been <gasps> stifling my grief with uh, copious amounts of alcohol and softcore porn, which if you have not seen Outlander, it's fucking porn. It's not just, there's lots of sex scenes. Girl, it's porn. It's not hardcore. There's no PNV that you see, but it's kind of everything else. Oh yeah. And it doesn't seem like that for the first seven episodes. And then you're like, Oh my God, there's so much sex in this. Oh yeah. And they're wildly attractive. Jamie, sploosh, <sighs> fuck. Ah. Oh my God. Girl. Love him. Mm. Oh, I know. The books, oh, my high school wet dreams were made of the Outlander books. <laughs> Girl, I literally like had like all the sex scenes like dog-eared. I knew exactly where they were. I could like flip to them immediately. I used to reread the books and then I would just basically skim over all of the fucking plot portion and I'd be like, let's get to the good stuff though. Amy, I love you so fucking much because that's something I would do. I literally like, <laughs> like found certain sex scenes because I was like, I haven't gotten to them yet. And I like kind of just want to watch the sex scene right now. And I was like, great. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> totally support that. Zero judgment. Girl, same. This is why we got the fingers in the eyes. Girl, I know. I actually need to catch up on that show. I feel like I stopped watching in like season two, honestly, which is insane. I think I stopped in three. 
And I think they're like at eight or some shit now. I don't know. It's, that's a lot of sex to catch up on. Fuck. (laughs) I mean, that's not a chore. That's fine. I'm good with that. (laughs) I will make the sacrifice. I'll throw that on my to-do list. Yeah. (laughs) Check and check. (laughs) Oh, shit. Uh, All right. But yeah, that's pretty much the excitement for my week. I'm into it. I'm very, very much looking forward to the paranormal story that you have prepared for me. Girl. So uh, true to form, I switched out my story. As, as I as I do. That's how you know it's going to be extra good because that means you fucking read some shit that you were just like, I'm sorry, what? Stop the presses. Stop everything. We're f- switching it up. Girl, so Deb loved Ireland and all things Irish with good reason. Yeah, she gave us our Banshee story. Yeah, she fucking did. And uh, the last time I had seen her was on St. Patrick's Day. And uh, there were some guys from Cork who came in who like the most touristy thing were wearing a shirt that said cork on it. And she's like, are you from cork? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. It's like, How did you know? And it's like, well, you know, St. Patrick's day, I needed to wear something Irish. So whatever. And then like, she sat with them and like, they fell in love with her immediately, of course. And like bought her like a billion rounds. And of course it's literally impossible not to fall in love with Deb immediately. I'm convinced. I mean, if you don't, you're just wrong. Like objectively. Yes. But, uh, objectively. <laughs> so, I'm doing a, an Irish story for Deb. And also, who doesn't fucking love Ireland? God. Right. Also, because it's uh, Ireland, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce everything. I'm trying really hard. I'm really sorry in advance to all of our, our Dublin lis- listeners out there, because I know we got a lot of them. So I'm going to be talking about the Cooneen Ghost House. I love that it's called a ghost house and not a haunted house. They're like, no, you know what the fuck you're finding when you come here. I know. I find that interesting as well, that they're just like, it's a ghost house. It's a house where ghosts live. Yes. Not a haunted house. No. It's a ghost in here. They own it. Thank you. They're the proprietors of this establishment. Ghost house. Clearly. So sources, the unexplained podcast, which is different from the William Shatner joint, broadly different. This one has facts. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> and not... William Shatner catching his breath on a stool. No. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously it's a podcast, so I couldn't watch it, but I, I couldn't hear the hypertension and the, <laughs> and the high blood pressure from the, the host's voice. Uh, BBC.co.uk, IrishTimes.com, and Google Reviews. And right off the top, we have a word that I'm going to mispronounce. I'm sorry. In County Fermanagh, Located just north of the border of Northern Ireland stands a small brick farmhouse that has become known as the Cooneen Ghost House. Despite there being very little record to support the claims of what occurred at the Cooneen Ghost House, the haunting and poltergeist activity at the small farmhouse in the middle of the woods is considered to be the most compelling and authenticated true ghost story in Irish history. Okay. I know. Those are some bold words. Okay. Better back this shit up, Ireland. Let's see. Yeah. And apparently, like, there's, like, people who, they just go around, like, debunking, like, ghost folklore and shit. And they're like, nah, this shit's the real fucking deal, though. In 1913, Bridget Murphy and her son and five daughters moved into the mountain cottage in Cooneen. Bridget was recently widowed when a few months earlier, her husband, Michael, had been violently upended from his cart and fallen headfirst onto a rock, killing him instantly. One night, the family of seven was fast asleep, which seven, fuck, like, I mean... You know, Catholic and Irish, I get it. But like, that's seven years of being pregnant. Holy shit. Ugh. Oh my God. I don't know why I never thought of it in those terms, but yeah. Girl. Ugh. 
My great-grandmother was pregnant for 12 years of her fucking life. All single births. Absolutely the fuck not. No twinsies there. It was just like one right after the other. No fucking thank you. Her poor vagina. Girl. I can't. That's the only thing I think when people say they have a million. I'm just like, oh, you're, ow, your lady bits. I know. God. R.I.P. <laughs> <laughs> One night, the family of seven was fast asleep. Bridget and her oldest daughter, Anne, slept in the main room in the center of the house next to the fire. In the bedroom to their right, 18-year-old Mary, 14-year-old Bridget, 9-year-old Catherine, and the youngest, 5-year-old Jane Anne, all slept soundly together in their bed. The only Murphy boy, 23-year-old James, was sleeping in his own bed at the other end of the house. Then suddenly, Bridget was awoken by the sound of something moving in the attic right above them. The room, which was being used as a makeshift barn, was only accessible from a stone stairwell outside of the house, which, I'm sorry, red flag. Like, I don't like that, but... Yes. You know. No. And Bridget was certain that no one was in there. She heard a noise coming from upstairs again and quickly did a bed check and found all of her children accounted for. When she returned back to the central room, another large bang rang out, waking up her daughters, causing them to scream and bolt from their beds with James in tow. Bridget urged her son to go investigate upstairs, which, yes, you have your own bed. You fucking go investigate. Right? Just saying. While the rest of the brood huddled together downstairs, James looked around and found nothing but barrels of straw. James returned back to the house to report his findings, and no sooner that he had, another large bang rang through the house, followed by another and another, each louder than the last, until just as quickly as it started, it stopped. A few nights later, five-year-old Jane Ann woke up screaming, having felt the bed move across the room and saying that she felt something had been pressing down on her from up above. No, thank you. All this is a no for me, dog. Absolutely not. The terrifying bangs and noises continued over the next several weeks, always beginning late at night and sometimes continuing into the day, and always originating from either the attic or the children's bedroom. One source said that the rappings were sometimes to the rhythm of tunes, like Boyne Water and the Soldier Song. I mean, part of me is like, that's a little nice, I guess, courteous. Like, it's better than just like angry banging. It was like fucking two shaves and a haircut, two bits. What is that? Shave and a haircut, two bits. Is that the song? Okay. For me, it's two shaves because I'm very hairy. So you need the the one and then you need the second shave. Yes, it is. But the thing that, see, I, this is more disconcerting to me because then I can't say that it's like a, a rat or some shit making the noise. <gasps> That's very true. Even though obviously a rat is not making that noise. It's like best case scenario, someone, a person is in my house. Yeah. You've got a squatter in your fucking attic. Yes. Which, no. No, thank you. No, thank you. But again, they never found out who or what was creating the sounds. Confused and scared, Bridget sought the counsel of her friends and neighbors, even inviting them to the house so they could hear for themselves. And they too heard the terrifying bangs that were so powerful, they rattled the windows. And granted, this is a fucking like, this is a fucking like brick house. This is not like a tin shack. This is like, so to rattle the fucking windows is some shit. Yeah, that takes some force. Mm Mm-hmm. Not long after, another sound was added to the mix. The blood-curdling sound of a foot being dragged from one side of the attic to the other. Um, no. No fucking thank you. Just no. No. We're moving today. Mm -hmm. By the way, in case you guys didn't know, we don't live here anymore. (laughs) 
Literally. Fuck. (laughs) And again, every time they went to investigate, they found nothing that could be making those noises. Soon, rumors began to circulate with one neighbor saying he had heard that the previous tenants, the Sherry family, had only stayed on the property for one night before fucking off and moving out quickly without explanation, leaving it unoccupied for six months before it was sold to the Murphys. Others said that years earlier, a man had hanged himself in one of the bedrooms of the small brick house. Okay, that's not super comforting Mm -mm. information to find out. Nope. Great. Cool. By this time, Bridget was certain that something paranormal was going on in her house. No shit. So she contacted the local priest, Father Smith, for help. Late one night, Father Smith arrived at the house to do his own investigation to see if he could figure out what the fuck was going on. And when he shows up, the family is in deep distress and they're fucking going through it. So he asked the family to congregate in the main central room while the priest goes room to room to investigate before being taken upstairs to the barn by James. When he came back, Smith asked the family if it would be all right for him to spend the night to see if anything happened while he was there. The family went to bed, and the priest huddled by the fire and waited. Then it started. The sound of straw being rustled from the room above, followed by a huge bang, awakening the Murphys and sending them screaming from their beds. The bangs intensified, with each getting worse. One described it as if a horse was kicking at the walls of the small farmhouse. Holy fuck, dude. This is super intense, I know. Also, like, I like my sleep. Like, I don't want to just listen to the fucking banging all night. Like, Christ, I got to get a solid eight hours. Literally through this entire thing, I was like, I would have been a fucking monster because how people get hangry, (laughs) that's how I'm at when I'm sleep deprived. I'm miserable and I fucking hate everyone. And my, I am short to put it very mildly. That would not have been a ghost house. That would have ended up being the fucking murder house. Because yes. I would have been like, sorry, I just, I haven't slept in like four weeks because of the fucking ghost. And I just ended up murdering uh, my seven children. My bad. And I snapped because you put like a shoe in the <laughs> wrong spot. And like, I couldn't because I haven't slept in four weeks. Yes, absolutely. Yes, literally. <laughs> the holy man gathered the family and quickly recited a mass as they all held on to each other tightly the reps slowly began to dissipate before stopping altogether. So Smith was like, cool, cool, cool. This place is haunted as fuck and goes back to the church and tells them his findings. And it's around this time that rumors start to circulate in the nearby towns that the Murphys are engaging in witchcraft and have deliberately invited demons into their home. Okay, don't slander us. I'm just trying to live my fucking life, all right? But were they? No, this is satanic panic bullshit. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, It's like, you're projecting. Settle down. Yes. And because, you know, we can't have nice things because people are the fucking worst. When the Murphy girls go to town for their crochet lessons, the other students would sit away from them and point and whisper and basically ostracize the girls. Like they're not going through enough? Literally, my next line is, because it's not fucking enough that there's a goddamn poltergeist disrupting their sleep and day-to-day lives, the kids at school are being assholes about it. Kids are mean. I don't like this. They're the fucking worst. And I know hashtag not a mother, but... Kids are the absolute fucking worst. That's objectively true. And if you do have kids, please make sure that you raise them to be kind, decent human beings and not like these little pieces of shit. Yes. Just my PSA for the day. Others thought the whole witchcraft thing was bullshit, but that the Murphys had been making the whole thing up, which also, what the fuck? Yeah, speechless. What? Get out of here. But you know who didn't think it was bullshit? Father Smith 
who spoke with the regional bishop who had instructed Eugene Coyne, a local reverend from the nearby Maguire's Bridge, to go to the house and give a second opinion as to what the fuck was going on, since it appeared that the disturbances had intensified since Smith's visit, with one source claiming that pots and pans would now fly across the kitchen on their own. Girl. No. Exactly. Why are you one-upping the banging? The banging was bad enough. Girl. Exactly. One fall night, Father Smith arrived with Father Coyne along with two other men at the Murphy home. Bridget took him into the girl's bedroom where the men found all the Murphy daughters in bed and terrified, clutching each other as a series of loud bangs rattled around them. In a what-the-fuck move, Coyne ordered the two men to hold down the children's arms and legs to make sure that they weren't the ones causing the disturbances, which all the trauma, oh my God. Right? We're like literally like huddled together, like probably trembling in fear. And then these guys were like, uh, we're just going to like forcibly hold you down. Is that okay? Cool. Except doesn't matter if you think it's okay because we're doing it anyway. Okay, thanks. Bye. Fuck these people right off. The men did as they were instructed and restrained the girls. Satisfied that they had been properly restrained, Coined sat down at the end of the bed. But almost as soon as he did, the banging started again and went on for about 10 minutes until the two tough men holding down five girls suddenly leapt from the bed, freaked out, claiming that something had pushed them off the bed. That's right, bitches. That's what you fucking get for the record. So at least the poltergeists are like defending these fucking women. Not even women, girls, because I guess men can't be trusted to. What the fuck? Right after that, the priest felt something else was in the room and had come up right behind him, but there was nothing there. And then, again, the bangs started all over again, and just then the family dog wandered into the bedroom, giving Coyne an idea. The holy man picked up the collie and placed the dog under the bed and said that whatever was there, if they had the power, to push the dog out from under the bed. Which, I'm not a dog person, but leave the fucking dog out of this. Yes! How dare you sacrifice this dog to the ghost, you motherfuckers? Also, dogs can, like, push themselves out from under a bed. Like, I don't really, I guess you could tell obviously whether it's like legs are moving and it's like shuffling itself back. But this seems like a weird paranormal test. The old collie test. 10,000%. This is a stupid fucking idea. It's not like, it's not like it's a fucking pet rock. A dog can move. It's fucking stupid. Yeah. Right. I was like, I'm so confused. Okay. Suddenly a rapid series of deafening bangs engulfed the room. Bangs louder and more intense than they had ever been heard, sending the dog out from beneath the bed, yapping before leaving the room altogether. So I don't know if that like proved it. The dog was like, I'm noping right the fuck out of here. Thanks. And they're like, well, right. Clearly. I don't know. This poltergeist is clearly a cat person. It was like, I don't know who put the dog under the bed, but get this fucking dog out of here right now. Absolutely not. That's fucking hilarious. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's at this point that coin breaks it to Bridget. There's something evil and malicious in your home, a.k.a. you in danger, girl. For real. Girl. In the following days, Father Smith and Father Coyne continued to visit the haunted house often and together in an attempt to bring comfort to the family, but also with the talk of performing a possible exorcism. Before they could get the go-ahead to perform one, they really had to know what they were dealing with. Every night after the kids had been put to bed, the knocking would start up again, sometimes immediately after but other times an hour or so later. On a rare, peaceful night, the children were fast asleep and Coyne requested to hear more about the noises coming from the attic. Father Smith stayed with Bridget and the sleeping children while James accompanied Coyne to James's bedroom. 
the sizable room had its blinds drawn over both windows, and in the corner was a bed that had been covered with a white quilt. The two men stood together in silence for a moment and listened. Then they heard what sounded like a small animal burrowing into straw, yet it was clearly moving from one side of the room to the other. Coyne told James to stay put and that the reverend grabbed another candle and headed outside and up the stone steps to the attic. The door opened and he peered inside, but saw nothing. No animal, just bundles of straw. He reunited with James in the bedroom and moments later, he heard the same gnawing sound. This time he asked James to go and scope it out while Coyne stayed behind and carefully listened. Similarly to Coyne, James went upstairs and found nothing. From Coyne's perspective though, At no point did this noise stop. As soon as James came back down, the two men felt as if something had rushed down from above like a gust of wind straight down into the floor. Freaked the fuck out, Coyne ordered James to open the blinds. The man did, and the room was filled with the hazy light of dawn. That's when James caught eye of the bed. Even though there was no one in the bed, the quilt was moving around slowly, billowing and undulating. Coin put his hand over the quilt and said that it was as if a barrel of eels was squirming around underneath. Oh, no. I don't want to sleep in the barrel of eels bed, please. Hard pass. Girl. Stepping back, the men watched with alarm as the amorphous sheet seemed gradually to fix into a shape, outlining what appeared to be some kind of figure lying underneath, with the quilt rising and falling, almost as if there was a person breathing underneath. Then suddenly the entire quilt began undulating violently. Father Coyne immediately said a mass, directing it toward that shape. Then, with what was described as the sound of hideous gurgling engulfed the room, almost as if the entity were dying right there in front of them, while Coyne continued to speak the scripture and holy words. The bed began to rock back and forth, lifting the legs inches from the ground. Then, Just as quickly as the chaos had started, the quilt dropped down and everything was calm again. Word of the haunting at the Murphy house spread far and wide with more and more people asking to come to the house to witness the disturbances for themselves. One evening, a well-known horse dealer arrived at the house to see what all the fuss was about. The man and his driver approached the home on their pony and trap. The driver stopped where the dealer was met outside by James, who had been expecting them. James greeted the horse dealer and showed him inside while the driver was instructed to wait outside alone. Sometime later, the driver noticed the silhouette of a figure walking towards him out from the distant dark of the woods. The driver watched as it drew closer and closer until the figure eventually passed him by and disappeared. The driver thought it was strange that anyone would be around seeing as the nearest neighbor or village was a significant distance away, not to mention it's the fucking middle of the night. But the driver brushed it off because denial's a hell of a drug and thought nothing of it until he saw another silhouetted figure approaching him from the same direction, and again, pass him by without saying a word, and then vanish. The driver grabbed his torchlight and held it out to see if he could make anything out. And yet again, another figure emerged from the distance. He called out, asking what was their business there, and got no response. And again, the figure walked past the cart and disappeared into the night. And just then, a heavy gust of wind blew through, blowing out the driver's torch and causing the horse to freak the fuck out, neighing and stamping and rising to its hind legs. Just then the dealer came out and demanded to be taken back home. Both Father Smith and Father Coyne asked the church to grant them permission to perform an exorcism on the home. 
but they were denied, which don't know why. I mean, well, like we mentioned before in our exorcism episodes that like, it's really tough to get a Catholics to approve that shit. A while later, Father Coyne was in the neighborhood visiting a sick member of the community when he decided to stop in and check on the Murphys. Most priests carry a container that holds a few consecrated wafers of bread, which in Catholicism are considered to be the actual body of Jesus Christ. So Coyne entered the home and as an experiment, he entered the children's bedroom while holding the container with the consecrated wafers and he made the sign of the cross. Immediately, loud bangs emanated throughout the entire house with everyone present throwing themselves on the ground for fear of what would happen next. Coyne placed the Eucharist on the floor and at that point, the sound seemed to travel through the wall down towards the small holy container before dropping underneath the floor below and moving deeper and deeper into the ground until it could no longer be heard. Bridget ultimately was like, fuck this, packed her bags and moved her family to America. While it isn't known what happened to the Murphys once they landed in the U.S., some have reported that passengers traveling on the same boat as them heard peculiar noises coming from the family's cabin late at night. The family's haunted. It's not the house. Girl, I know. Sorry, I can't handle that. The two clergymen did not leave the Murphy's house unscathed either. Smith ended up contracting spinal meningitis, while Coyne ended up suffering from facial paralysis. Girl! I was like, no one can see my face. Monique can see my face. Yes. The deeply upset what the fuck face. Yes. A third priest who had also been brought in to look at the disturbances in the house ended up having a complete nervous breakdown. And some accounts say that he died by suicide. Today, the farmhouse is boarded up and much of the forest surrounding the house has been cut down. You can't enter the home anymore, but multiple reviews state that the place has an eerie quality to it that makes the hairs on your neck stand up with others warning that if you go, not to stay long. And that is the Kunin ghost house. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Oh my God, I loved it. Girl. I loved it. Yeah. Girl. Okay, so the family was haunted. It wasn't the house, but like everyone fucking saw that shit basically. Yes, everyone saw it. Priests saw it. Three of them saw it. And whenever we bring Jesus into the mix, like this thing freaks the fuck out gets really mad yeah he like doesn't like him for some reason i guess not. don't know what the deal is they have some beef clearly but clearly girl yeah and that is considered to be the most reputable haunting in irish history i mean i see why this is a lot of fucking eyewitness testimony let's be real it's a lot of eyewitness testimony and it's nothing too outlandish either yes you know it's bangings it's like it's not like the headless horseman is here. You know, like it's... Yeah. Like some people would straight up be like, so yeah, I saw a demon in the corner and you're like, all right, that's a little harder for me to believe. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's just something that is very believable. Yes. I completely agree. I, can you still go to this house? Does it still exist? Did I miss that part? You can still go to the house, but it's been boarded up because apparently before you could like literally just walk into this random house in the fucking woods willy nilly. What? <laughs> yeah. That doesn't seem safe or responsible. I'm glad someone came forward and was like, we need to actually board this up and lock it. We shouldn't just be like letting teenagers make out here. I don't know what's happening, but I'm assuming that's the main reason. Totally. It has to be teenagers like, you know, banging in a, in an abandoned house. I mean, that's the banging house, Monique. It's the banging house or the smoking weed house. They set the fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay with either of those things. Let's fucking do it. <laughs> Let's fucking go, Monique. 
I was like, the ghosts are banging, the teenagers are banging. Like, I get it. Some brand for the house. And I'm just trying to chill out, just smoke a J. You know, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but also, I'm convinced that nothing's going to happen in that house now because obviously, whatever it was followed them to America. So this house is clean. It's literally the end of the Haunted Mansion ride. Yes. There you go. It's the like, or a ghost will follow you home. That's literally what's happening here. It's like some people came to the United States and brought VD and syphilis with them. And these people brought a fucking poltergeist. What the fuck? (laughs) I was like, I'll take the poltergeist for 300, please, Alex. (laughs) I mean, also in like 1913, there's no cure for VD. So I guess poltergeist is the way to go. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't want to fucking... Meh. I was going to say I don't want to lose all my pubes, but maybe. <laughs> I don't want to mark it, Monique. Or to go insane, which is the last stages of syphilis, obviously. Losing your gut and mind. It's the falling off of the nose for me that gets me. Oh! See, my brain literally just immediately upon hearing that information is like, that's too disturbing. Yeah, it's like, deleted. Delete. Bye. Yeah. So until you reminded me of that, I forgot that was the thing that happened. Yeah. No, that's far more horrifying. Because no one talks about it because it's actually the worst. So like, yeah, people go crazy. You're like, ah, that's fine. That's that's palatable. But it's like your nose will fall off of your fucking face, girl. Yeah. (laughs) I will take crazy over no nose any day. 10,000%. Hot take. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Controversial. I know. But I'm just saying. Controversial yet brave. That's who we are on this podcast. Oh, my God. Uh, I love that story. Thank you. I love a good Irish tale, so I'm never, never opposed. Girl, of course. Always. And now we got to go see this uh, random boarded up house in the woods. Oh, darn. I guess I have to go to Ireland then. I know. Literally, we like don't even go see the house. We're like, we just wanted a trip to Ireland and we just like said we were going to do it. I just want to go to Ireland and meet my husband so my mom will get off my dick. I know I'll be married in a second if I go to Ireland. Oh, 100%. With your porcelain skin and your <laughs> fucking gorgeous red hair. Girl, it's not course. porcelain anymore. I got burned to shit working in New Jersey. Did you? No. So now I'm like, I'm like. You look tan though, if anything. I'm tan. That is not a Monique Sanchez vibe. Look at this. Tan. Girl. Girl. Skin cancer is sexy. Bahama mama. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Put that SPF on kids. Oh, Yeah. I, I, I don't fuck with anything less than a 50, 50 to hundred. That's where I live, baby. Same minimum. Like if you're fucking pulling out the 75, like hit a bitch up. I'll fucking take it. Hey, sploosh. But yeah, no, literally 50 minimum. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I'll still burn. So fuck it. <laughs> Cause you got to reapply every 90 minutes. Uh, yeah. It's a thing. Also, I don't go in the sun. <laughs> I literally go in the sun like once every year. So my body's always <laughs> like, ah, what are you doing? Oh, man. So going into the true crime den. Oh, girl, we're going in the den. I love it. I got you. So in case you guys didn't realize, it's motherfucking shark week, bitches. Yes, bitch. Beep, beep, beep. Girl. Uh, yeah. And you know, I love a theme. So Amy, you are the queen of the theme. <laughs> I am the queen of the themes. This one was actually quite a coincidence because I found the story and I was like, this is fucking bananas. And I was like, this would actually be really good for shark week. I wonder when that is. And, and you're like, hi, right meow. I literally Googled it. And it was like, yeah, it starts today. And I was like, oh, amazing. Perfect. 
course. Like, <laughs> I wish you could <laughs> see the dance universe. I'm doing. It's really, really cute. I was like, hands up, all the bopping. I love it. Bopping, pelvic thrusting. It's like, mm, bop up in this bitch. <laughs> I can't see the pelvic thrusting because I can only see uh, like tits up. Tits up, yeah. But I was like, I'm here for it. <laughs> so sources, dictionaryofsydney.org, mentalfloss.com, atlasobscura.com, grunge.com, news.com.au, and good old Wikipedia. Love it. So in April of 1935, a fisherman named Bert Hobson and his son were out fishing off the coast of Coogee Beach in Southeast Australia, not too far from Sydney, when Bert managed to hook a small shark on his line. But as he was reeling it in, a large tiger shark decided to make a snack of the smaller shark. And Bert ended up reeling them both in. Oh, shit. His original catch. Yeah literally inside of the larger shark. And the shark was pretty fucking big. So the tiger shark that Bert caught weighed over a ton. Shit! Yeah. And measured around 14 feet, which is pretty fucking big as far as sharks go. That's two us as long. Yes. Yes, that is two us as long. And that's too long for a shark that I want to be anywhere near, for the record. 10,000%. A little perspective, tiger sharks, which are actually one of the largest sharks, have been measured at over 24 feet, though that's very rare, and they usually range in size from 10 to 14. So this is on the larger end. I'm not comfortable with either of those numbers. No. No. No, no, no. Nor should you be. They should be cat size. That's it. Right? I'm okay with that. Little cat shark. That's fine. Adorable. Yeah. Put them on a little leash. Be like, hi. This is my shark. Hi. Hi, sharky. (laughs) It's my pet shark. Cute. To put that in perspective, great white sharks generally range in size from 11 feet to 21 feet, and the largest on record is 23 feet long. So it's up there. Mm -hmm. After the shark was caught, still alive, mind you, Bert, who also happened to own the nearby Coogee Aquarium, decided to bring the creature there to be featured as one of the attractions instead of throwing it back into the sea. Mm. Attendance at the aquarium had been suffering recently, ever since the Coogee Pier, with its 1,400-seat theater ballroom, restaurant, and penny arcade had been demolished the previous year. Hmm. But Bert was convinced the shark would attract more visitors to the aquarium, especially since at that time, Australia was experiencing a bit of a wave of shark paranoia due to some recent shark-related deaths. Hmm. In late February and early March of 1935, three men were killed by shark attacks near New South Wales. And Believe it or not, they actually employed bounty hunters to help rid Sydney's beaches of the deadly threat. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's the level this got to. Bert's hunch turned out to be right, and crowds of visitors began flocking to the aquarium to see the man-eating creature they all feared from a safe distance. The captured tiger shark initially seemed to have adjusted well to its new aquarium home. Initially. Initially. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. But a few days later, on April 25th, which is also known as Anzac Day, a national holiday similar to Memorial Day observed by both Australia and New Zealand, the shark started acting strangely. It became irritable and began behaving erratically, repeatedly ramming the walls of its tank before sinking to the bottom. Oh, shit! Yes. And swimming in lazy, irregular circles. Just then, let, let, you know, free willy, let the fucking shark go. Send it to its home. Why the fuck is it here? Right? Goodbye. It doesn't want to be in captivity. You don't want to be here? Cool. Goodbye. Okay, sorry. It's not into this. Sorry, we we misread the situation. I'm sorry, shark. Goodbye. Thank you. What the fuck? Right? Simple solution. 
it doesn't want to be there. Let it the fuck out. It's like, my bad. Go. Yeah. Sorry. I misread this. I'm sorry. <laughs> Which is, I say like three times a week. I miss, I clearly misread the situation. I'm sorry. I misread. <laughs> At least you admit it. I do. Yeah. We're making, like, that's all. Yes. Yeah. Then at 4.30 p.m., the shark suddenly started convulsing violently and proceeded to vomit up a rat, followed by a bird, followed by a severed human arm. What the fuck? Girl. Girl. I know you're not prepared for the story. No, I'm fucking not. Arms are in the air. Sorry. Jaws on the floor. Arms are in the air. This is where I'm at emotionally <laughs> and physically. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I want you to be always morning. Hands up, jaw down. You nail it. Oh, that's supposed to... Yes. It's like I'm on a ro- roller coaster when I hear Amy's stories, literally. <laughs> I'll bring you on a roller coaster of emotion, Monique. Get ready. Now, as you can imagine, the visitors who witnessed this horrifying expulsion were shocked, to say the very least. The police were called, and the severed arm was retrieved from the tank. The shark was killed shortly after and cut open in search of more body parts, but no other remains were found, and the autopsy turned out to be a waste. Also, fun fact, although they were not 100% sure, apparently it was very likely that the arm had actually been swallowed by the first shark. (gasps) Oh, shit! And that it literally, the tiger shark regurgitated the arm from the first shark. Again, not confirmed, but that's... A possibility that exists in this fucking universe. Yes, exactly. Right? Blew my fucking mind. I wish you could see every single face that is happening between Amy and I in the story. Blew my mind. My God. So, while the authorities assumed the arm was just evidence of another deadly shark encounter, they brought it to the medical examiner for analysis anyway. The medical examiner determined that the severed left-hand limb had belonged to a man and estimated that the arm had been inside the shark's stomach anywhere from 8 to 18 days. Shit! But... That's so long. They what? They have the slowest digestive shit, apparently, ever. Apparently. I did not realize. But despite the highly acidic environment of the shark's stomach, there was still a rope attached to the wrist, and a tattoo of a pair of boxers sparring was clearly visible on the skin. What the fuck about all of this? Girl, I know. <laughs> Couldn't handle the story for one second. I can't handle the story for one second. Like, was I so thrilled that it was Shark Week and I could, like, have a theme for the story? Yes. Yes. The most surprising discovery, however, came when they realized that there was absolutely no way that the shark's teeth had been responsible for severing the arm. The coroner's report revealed that the cut, while not surgical, had clearly been made by something especially sharp, like a knife or something similar. Uh Uh-huh. Girl. Uh Uh-huh. Suspecting that whoever the arm belonged to had been the victim of foul play, the police immediately launched a homicide investigation. This is fucking wild. Yep. Can you fucking imagine? No, not for one second. Not for one second. No. (laughs) Don't even finish the sentence because I don't, like... (laughs) You're going to the aquarium, like you're with your family, and then you watch a shark throw up a human arm, and then the next day you read in the paper, they're like, by the way, uh, the shark was not responsible, and we're pretty sure there's been a murder. FYI. But also, what a fucking great story to cocktail party. (gasps) Right? You are the most popular person at that goddamn cocktail party. Girl. Girl. Do I want to have my birthday party at the aquarium? (laughs) Fuck yeah, I do. Let's do this. 
fucking do this. So the police allowed a local newspaper, Sydney's Truth, to print a description and picture of the tattoo found on the arm in the hopes that someone would come forward with information about who it belonged to. And it turns out that the authorities were in luck because when Edwin Smith read the article about what had happened to the aquarium, he immediately recognized the description of the tattoo. His brother, James Smith, had the same distinctive design located in the same exact place. And he just so happened to have been missing since April 7th. What a dink! Oh, my Buddha. I know. What? Um, can you imagine that? Just being like reading something and you're like, that sounds like my brother's arm. And why the fuck was it in a shark? Yes. Okay, thanks. Bye. Oh, I can't even. I fucking can't even. No, literally, I just feel that it's like trauma on trauma of everyone in part of the story. <laughs> like, yes. Like as if like your brother going missing wasn't bad enough. And then you're like, wait, his arm ended up in a shark, but it was not a shark attack. And it was very clearly like hacked off. What the fuck? Even for the shark, like that's literally like the shark was like, I just wanted a nom. And what the fuck is this arm doing here? (laughs) Like imagine going to like a fucking, like a a fucking like olive garden and you order like a bottomless bowl of pasta or whatever the fuck. And then you're like, hi, Ikumi, that's not what I ordered. Like, what the fuck is this thing doing here? That's not what I wanted. (laughs) He's like, I just had some munchies. There's trauma top to bottom for everyone, including the fucking shark. Right? Mm. Girl. Girl. You're fucking preaching to the choir on this one. I mean, I know. Edwin immediately contacted the police and told them that he believed that the severed limb belonged to his brother, Jimmy. Shortly after receiving the tip, officers were able to pull fingerprints from the arm and positively identified the hand as belonging to James Smith. Mm. James Smith was born in England, but eventually relocated to Gladesville, Australia. He was a former lightweight boxer who now, at the age of 45, managed a local billiards bar. Mm, Red flag. Yeah. (laughs) I love that you said that. I thought it, but I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like put my beliefs on it. No, I spent my, my youth being like, I'm an adult, I'm 19 and going to a beach billiards in Miami beach and like definitely getting served even though I was 19 years old and did not look of age. They don't give a fuck. Yep. It was definitely a, a, sh- a place for shady activity. <laughs> Just saying. Sketch. Little sketch. Just like minor sketchiness. MVD. Sketch, sketch, edge of sketch for sure. <laughs> yes. A hundred fucking percent. Mm-hmm. And while the local newspaper described Jimmy as, quote, a man with seemingly not an enemy in the world, end quote. Except that. That wasn't quite true. Obviously. Because what the paper didn't mention was that Jimmy had connections to known criminals in the area. Billiards bar. <laughs> we didn't do our research, but like he's, no, he's a nice guy. Like n- doesn't know anybody bad. I was literally talking about this last night about Ted Bundy and the fallacy of like, he was super normal and like no one saw it coming. No. Except that he was turned in by his ex and his fucking college professor who were like, hi, That sounds like my student. Yeah. Which is some fucking shit. Right? Like, you have to be super fucked up for your professor to be like, this really sounds like this dude who's in my trig class. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, this fallacy of, like, everyone is, you know, these these monsters who, who lurk among us and we don't know, it's bullshit. It's not fucking real. And don't let the fucking media tell you it is because it's not real. Because if you spend 
10 minutes with someone, you're like, there's something wrong with them. They're fucking weird. Yes. The red flags are there. Yes. They're always there. Yes. And if you ignore them, that happens. We've all been there. I mean, I will introduce you to many an ex-boyfriend that were like red flag central and I ignore the red flags, but they're there. Don't fucking tell me they're not. So I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I'm very keyed up right now. Clearly. Uh, no, rightfully so, Monique. Mm. You fucking tell them how it is, girl. <laughs> We need to know. They know how it is. Everyone knows how it is. Right? Yeah. You've all seen the red flags. You've all ignored some red flags. Trust me. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've all been there. Girl. You're like, this is totally fine. No, it's really, I'm just overreacting. <laughs> this is a me problem, guys. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too sensitive. I think I'm like projecting. I don't know what's going on. And you're like, no, they're just weird or an asshole or, or toxic. No, it's a glaring red flag or have ties to like criminal organizations you know like good old jimmy here jimmy dude not an enemy in the world though don't worry about it Mm -mm. police investigations revealed that on the night of his disappearance jimmy was seen drinking and playing dominoes at the cecil hotel not to be confused with the one in america obviously but also dominoes fuck yeah i included that just because i was like i know monique loves dominoes like could i have left that fact out yeah i love you so much i actually can't handle it just it, that needs to be stated. It's stated a lot. I never get tired of hearing it. But I, I just always need to say it. I'm like preening right now. So. <laughs> Girl, we got to play some dominoes soon. I'm fucking down. Girl! Uh, I love dominoes. I got the set ready. Let's fucking go. <gasps> I'm a, you can't be a good Cuban... And not have dominoes. ...person without... And, not, and to double nine. Fuck that double six all the way. Double nine, baby. 100%. 100%. Girl. Yeah, girl. I know. The only place I ever played dominoes was at, with my grandmother, who was, like, from Miami. From Miami. Yes. So double, double yes. nine all the way. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should educate yourself. Right? <laughs> I'm sorry. That was so shitty to say. <laughs> Monique's like, I'm not going to tell you. Sometimes I don't, I, my tone comes across as really sincere or judgy when I'm just making a joke, but, um, Domino's is amazing. Just saying it's great. It's a fun time. Yes. I'm down. We're, we're having a game. We're having it. We're doing it. It's happening. Domino's and dull whips. Let's do this. (gasps) Okay. I love an alliteration. Girl. I know. Yes. (laughs) You can't see me. Monique has not put her hand down. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. I love you. That's all. I love you. So he was seen drinking and playing dominoes at the Cecil Hotel with his longtime friend, Patrick Brady, who, in addition to being a World War I veteran, was also a convicted forger. Oh, shit. Fun for the whole family. Yeah. Which also, that's kind of really cool. That's like a sexy crime. You know what I mean? Sorry. No. Thank you for saying the things I think, but that I'm like, I... Girl, I've already said too many like questionable things on this podcast, like the murder trust. I can't ever run for office. Half of my family's in politics. And it's like, this is just a big old no. Like everything that comes out of my mouth. Definitely not. But forgery is kind of hot. There's a skill to it, you know? <laughs> yes. I think that's why we like it. Yeah. Because it's like a like semi-intelligent crime. And it's not, it's not really violent usually. No, exactly. So you're like, you can forgive it. It's just, you're like, I'm just passing fake money. Yeah. And if you're good at it, fuck yeah. We're all picturing Leonardo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can. Obviously. Obviously. I mean, sploosh. Obvious. Yes. Fuck. Girl. I love how he was like 
30 and playing like when he was like a teenager. I mean, you know, movie magic. I mean, that's the <laughs> name of the game. Yeah, girl, it's fine. So after a couple of drinks, the two men returned to the cottage Patrick was renting on the shores of Gunamata Bay. And that was the last time Jimmy was seen alive. Mm. As the investigation continued, it became clear to police that the two friends' night out had taken a turn for the worse. Patrick's landlord told the authorities that he had vacated the cottage shortly after Jimmy went missing and before the lease was up. After Patrick left, the landlord realized that a mattress and a trunk had been replaced and noticed that the walls had been cleaned Mm. and that the rowboat included with the cottage rental had also been scrubbed down, which most renters, they're not that considerate. They don't do that shit. My apartment is fucking filthy. If you've murdered someone and gotten away with it and want like 200 bucks to clean my apartment to the point that like <laughs> a luminol test wouldn't even find shit, DM me right now. <laughs> you like legit need someone to clean my apartment. I love that so much. Girl, I get it. I like wash my sheets for the first time and like I'm ashamed to admit how long. And I like let the best night sleep because I was just like, oh girl, no judgment. We are fingers in the eyes so hard. Girl. Girl. <laughs> that struggle's so fucking real. So if you've murdered someone and gotten away with it, I won't even tell the cops. I won't even put you forward. But like if you want to clean my shit, I'm super down. FYI. Right? <laughs> girl. Girl, look, I've moved out of a number of apartments and I'm just saying when you leave, like you don't scrub the walls and the fucking rowboat that comes with the fucking rental. Like, no, definitely not the rowboat. No, I fucking lose my security deposit because there's fucking pet hair everywhere or some stupid shit like that. Yeah. And you're like, I'm fine. I'm fine losing the like 1100 bucks, whatever. You're like, I, it's really not worth it to me. Thanks. Yeah. You can keep the money. I like can't deal with any of this fucking shit anymore. Thanks. 10,000%. Right? Red flag. Red flag. So police were convinced that they had found their suspect. Now they just needed a motive. They discovered that Patrick had taken a cab from the cottage the morning after Jimmy disappeared and were able to locate the taxi driver. According to the driver, Patrick was alone when he picked him up and described him as quote unquote disheveled. He said Patrick was clearly frightened and kept looking out the back window as if worried he was being followed. Mm. He also kept one of his hands in his pocket and refused to take it out. Mm. The driver testified that on the day Jimmy had gone missing, he had taken Patrick to the house located at 3 Bayview Street in New South Wales. And the house? Turns out it was owned by a seemingly respectable middle-class businessman named Reginald Lloyd Holmes. Except that. Except that. Seemingly, he probably wasn't super respectable. What a twist. I know, right? <laughs> what are the odds? Crazy. Except all the time. You hear about it literally all the fucking time. Yeah. You're like, hi, thanks. This is not my first episode. I know what the fuck's happening. I know what the fuck. Reginald was an entrepreneur who had followed in his father's and grandfather's footsteps and ran a highly successful boat building business in Lavender Bay. Although the business was profitable, Reginald also used it as a front for his more lucrative but highly illegal operations and was deeply involved in Sydney's criminal underworld. There the fuck it is. Yep. Using the speedboats built in his boat shed, he would coordinate cocaine drops from passing ships at Sydney Heads, which he would then sell in the city. Girl. Girl. I know. 
Can you imagine? No. It's like ride the speedboat. I'm going to go pick up like a couple kilos of cocaine out of the sea and I'll be back. Did I ever tell you about the, the drug house in my neighborhood? No. You told me about the time you accidentally did cocaine, which I didn't think was possible. And then I was like, oh. <laughs> yes, there was that. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's accurate. That's That was a true story. Yes. And it was a very much Monique Sanchez story. Um, so there was, uh, so my parents live on the Bay in Miami beach and you know, my parents moved in during the, the cocaine drug wars. Like I was born at like the tail end of that. And there was always rumors of like a drug house in the neighborhood. Of course. Of course. You know, I mean, it's Miami beach probably. Right. Yeah. But it's also like Spanish people and Miami people talk a lot of shit. So you can't, you have to take everything with the, the most enormous grain of salt that exists. So then Google Earth becomes a thing. And my younger brother is like, hey, girl, except he doesn't use that that vernacular. <laughs> he didn't say that. No, he was like, hey. Uh, rem- he was like, hello, Monique. Hello, sister. He's like, uh, you know that drug house uh, that we've heard about? And I was like, yeah. He's like, uh, so I'm going to show you a Google Earth image of the backyard. And you tell me if this is a drug house. And I'm like, I literally don't know what he could show me for me to be like, that's absolutely a drug house. And then he showed me. So again, my parents live on the bay. And most houses, it's, it's become an affluent area. Most houses have a backyard at minimum with a pool, you know, because also this house has like been on the market forever and ever. Okay. Which it being on the water and in that neighborhood should have sold very quickly. And then I saw the Google image. Oh no. Bad. Basically the backyard has been completely dug out so that the water goes directly to the back door. Uh, what? AKA you can back up a boat directly to the house and move shit into a house without having to cross the backyard and have anyone see what the fuck you're moving. I like, <laughs> part of me is like, oh my God, terrible. But also part of me is like, I mean, that's fucking genius. Like, get it. If that's what you're going to do, fucking do it well, right? 10,000%. But the thing is they can't sell the house because it doesn't have a backyard and a pool. Like literally every other house in that fucking neighborhood. So they have to build a back because it, Amy, the water literally goes to the back door of the house. <laughs> They're really like, open the door. And then I was like, oh, that's a drug house. And my brother's like, yeah, girl. Again, he didn't girl me. But yeah, girl, I know. Wait, I love this too much. Miami Beach is wild. <laughs> Just like. Miami Beach is wild. For realsies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I (laughs) fucking like kilos of cocaine wash up on the beach and people like find them randomly. Like that happens still to this day in Miami. Like that's how fucking insane Miami is. Literally facts all of the time. Girl, I was like, I just get sunburned when I go to the beach. Why can't I fucking get a goddamn kilo of cocaine? (laughs) Son of a bitch. No, I'm just kidding, guys. So Reginald also worked insurance scams, including one where he bought overinsured, and subsequently sank a pleasure cruiser named the Pathfinder. While Jimmy Smith had worked for Reginald legally in the early 30s as a builder, it wasn't long after that he began working for him in other, less legal capacities. Jimmy was often the one who drove the speedboats out to pick up the drugs that had been dropped overboard and was even the caretaker of the Pathfinder, the boat Reginald had sunk for the insurance money. Mm. Eventually, Jimmy and Reginald teamed up with Patrick who, again, was a known forger, and the three started counterfeiting checks from Reginald's wealthy clients and using both his and Jimmy's businesses to cash them. And they would do them for, like, really small amounts so that the people wouldn't, like, really notice or give a shit, I guess, and 
no one really caught on. Well, that's the way you got to do it. Yeah. You can't do it for a large amount. Otherwise the fucking. You can't be like $5,000 because then it's like, hi, that's that's sus as fuck. But if you do it for like 10 bucks, it's like, that can fly under the radar. Like, I don't, yeah, exactly. What's this charge? I don't know. Fuck it. Whatever. Mm -hmm. So detectives believe that the three men must have had some sort of falling out after one of their schemes went tits up and believe that one of them had murdered Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And while I'm not really sure when this next bit of information came out, and I don't actually think police knew this at the time, apparently after the intentional sinking of the Pathfinder, Reginald found out that Jimmy had reported the incident as quote unquote suspicious to police. Mm. So Reginald was unable to collect the insurance money And this is likely what caused the falling out between the two men. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, Jimmy reportedly began blackmailing Reginald. But again, I don't really think police knew this at the time. And I think this kind of came out later. Although the authorities had two suspects and a possible motive, there was still no body. And all the evidence in the case was circumstantial. Mm. Because he could have just like drowned on his own and then a shark ate his fucking shit. Girl, exactly. Ugh, infuriating. What police really needed was a confession. So the authorities decided to bring Patrick Brady in on unrelated forgery charges. And while in custody, they questioned him regarding Jimmy's disappearance. But Patrick was uncooperative during the interrogation. Reginald was also brought in for questioning, but he just straight up claimed that he didn't know Patrick. And like the police released him. I don't know why. Like, I'm pretty sure at this point they knew that Patrick had gone to Reginald's house after like the morning after fucking Jimmy was killed. But they were like, I mean, you said you didn't know him. So like you didn't know him. It's fine. Like you're free to go. I mean, the only way you do that is if you're like, I didn't know him. It's like, cool, cool, cool. It's like, we're going to put a tail on you and we're going to bug the shit out of you. And then like have see like, that's the only way you do that. It's like, okay, cool. You don't know him. Fine. Then be like, I'm going to catch you in a lie, motherfucker. Right. And I'm going to bury you. Yeah. For realsies. Again, in case anyone has forgotten the time period, it is like 1935. So like there's not. Right. Of course. A lot. Yeah. You basically have to leave your fucking ID and social at a crime scene to be like, I did it. (laughs) To be caught literally like fucking when they were talking about fingerprinting the arm to like figure out who it was, they were like, this new forensic technique. Ah, yeah. Like it's a fucking, yeah, that's where we're at right now. So take that into account. John Mulaney does a bit about like solving crime in like the twenties of being like, it's so good. Yeah. Being like, Oh, there's this, there's this puddle of blood in the back. It's like, ew, gross. Mop it up. Like it's, that's essentially what the fuck <laughs> we're working with. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't see anyone uh, leaving their calling card behind. So I guess it's uh, unsolved, boys. That's a wrap. Mm-hmm. Go home. Have a beer. Cat print Emmy. Exactly. Ridiculous. So the authorities were frustrated, to say the least. They had no body, and their two main suspects were refusing to cooperate. On May 16th, police officially charged Brady with the murder of Jimmy Smith. And mm. and although Reginald denied even knowing Patrick Brady, four days later, on May 20th, 1935, the prominent businessman grabbed a bottle of brandy, his 32 caliber pistol, and headed out to one of the speedboats in his boat shed. He then proceeded to get rip-roaring drunk, then shot himself point-blank in the forehead with the 32. 
So he old yellered himself? Well, kind of. He tried. Oh, shit. Because, girl, here's the craziest thing. Oh, shit. The bullet was such a small caliber that it literally just flattened against his forehead. Yes. Reginald was stunned by the impact and fell overboard into the water, but a rope got caught around one of his wrists as he fell, which stopped him from drowning, and the shock of the water revived him. Girl! So he's like, ouch! That was it. So he shot in the head. Literally. He was like, ooh, I didn't like that. Girl, 100%. That's what happened. So it was just like an ouchie? Yes! Like, ah, I didn't like that. It hurt. No. And then he's like, brush it off. Oh, shit. That didn't go well. Another swigger brandy. You know, whatever. So the shock of the water revived him. He crawled back into the speedboat and he raced off into the harbor. Reginald then proceeded to lead the police on a dramatic four-hour chase. Girl. Girl. Through mid-morning ferry traffic until he was finally caught just outside Sydney Heads and taken to the hospital. Girl. Literally, like, drank a bottle of brandy. Obviously innocent as fuck. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like, (laughs) who, if they're, like, guilty, would try to kill themselves on a boat in the harbor? Like, what? Crazy. Hmm. Insane. Literally insane. But yeah, he's fucking fine. Literally just, like, I don't know that it even really, like, I'm sure it broke the skin, but, like, Nothing else happened. He, like, brushed it off. It was totally cool. I'm so blown away by this. Reginald was placed under arrest. Obviously, the police were very interested in what drove him to this botched suicide attempt because, as you just implied, huge red flag. Dude, you could have just played it cool. You, like, outed yourself, buddy. I don't know what else to tell you. So police brought him in for questioning in early June 1935. Although he initially wasn't exactly forthcoming with information, Mm. eventually they convinced Reginald to cooperate and confess what he knew about Jimmy Smith's disappearance. He told police that Patrick Brady had acted alone and had killed Smith in the rental cottage before dismembering the body and stowing it in a trunk that he then dumped in the bay. He said Patrick kept Jimmy's arm with its distinctive tattoo, so there would be no doubt as to who it came from, mm. and had brought the severed limb to his house to blackmail him. Which, like, girl, can you imagine? And he went to his house in the morning. So, like, imagine, like, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, whatever time this is. You haven't even had your fucking Dunkin'. Girl, you, like, you just made your coffee, you're sitting down, your fucking partner in crime walks in, and he's like, hi, severed limb, bitch, where's my money? And you're like, Bro, I haven't even had breakfast yet. I'm like not prepared for this. Only Riri can ask me, bitch, better have my money. Right? And Riri's getting paid. I'm not going to fucking, yes, thank you. Making it rain in this bitch. I was like, I feel like she puts somebody in a trunk in that music video. And that's also particularly applicable to the situation. I'm into it. Well, I was thinking of the uh, Needed Me video where she walks into a strip club and kills someone in the champagne room. Equally bamf. <sighs> Love Ruby. She is amazing. And her Fenty lip stains are bomb.com. Just saying. Girl, Ruby doesn't fuck around. She does shit right. So he brings the severed limb to the house to blackmail him. And according to Reginald, Patrick demanded 500 pounds, which with inflation and the conversion rate winds up being just under $48,000. So like, kind of a 
fuck. Right? Kind of a hefty price tag. Hefty sum. Yeah. Yeah. And Patrick warned Reginald that he would be next if he didn't pay up. Reginald told police that he had panicked after Patrick left and decided to get rid of the arm by tossing it in the ocean, where eventually a shark stumbled on the limb and made a little snack of it. Nom, 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 nom. After he confessed to police, Reginald agreed to testify against Patrick, who was being charged with Jimmy's murder. On June 11, 1935, the day before the inquest into Jimmy Smith's death, Reginald withdrew 500 pounds from his bank account and told his wife he had to meet someone. According to her, he was very cautious as he left that evening and even had her walk him out to his car, which pretty sure he's straight up using her as a human shield in the scenario, like NBD. Super fucked up, by the way. That's a super bitch move. Just saying. Right? It's like, hey, I gotta like meet somebody, but like, can you walk in front of me to the car, please, real quick? Just real quick. Don't worry about it. It's fine. No. No. He's a shit husband, P.S. Right? Get a divorce, girl. Girl. Yes. Thank you. Early the next morning, Reginald was found dead in his car, having been shot three times at close range. Girl. While the crime scene was made to appear that he had committed suicide, forensic police had no doubt that he had actually been murdered. This is some goodfellas shit. For real. Hell yeah. Especially considering the timing. I mean, Reginald was scheduled to give evidence at Smith's inquest literally later that morning. Like, oh shit, dude, come on. This is murder on Middle Beach shit. Seriously. Girl. Ah, which, when are they coming out with another season of that? Please and thank you. Girl, literally, also Madison, fuck, sploosh. What a babe. I know. Mm. We objectified him so much. Are we going to stop? No. Amazing. Like, ah. Squee. So cute. Uh, which you don't know because we cut it at like, cut like 80% of it out of one of our early episodes. <laughs> I forgot. We totally did. We like. <laughs> it was uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable to the point that I was like, I have to cut this because someone's going to. Because he's like 15 years younger than me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because somebody is going to call us out and be like, hi, um, you're being total creeps right now. Can you like. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> It's me who said it and me who called myself out on it. Yeah. I was here for it. Again, no judgments with Monique on this. He's adorable. Girl, love you. Girl, love you. Oh, God. So police believe that Patrick Brady had likely used his criminal connections to order Reginald Holmes's murder from prison so that he would be unable to testify against him. Obvious assumption. Makes sense. However, in his 1999 book, The Shark Arm Murders, there was another possibility. Mm. Castles believed that Reginald hired a hitman to kill himself. Yes. Oh, and Alex Murdoch bullshit? Yeah. Oh. It may seem like an odd choice considering he had already survived one suicide attempt, but it's possible that after the first one had failed so spectacularly, he thought having someone else pull the trigger would be easier and, let's be real, more effective. Because, like, He kind of fucked it up. It also would have allowed his family to collect on his life insurance policy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Since that would have been voided if he had died by suicide. Reginald Holmes was cremated at Northern Suburbs Crematorium on June 13th, 1935, and left behind an estate valued at over 34,000 pounds. Or, with all of the conversion slash inflation... $3.2 million in today's money. Damn, Gina. Yeah. Okay. Girl, 
which like I'm sure his wife was like, I know you used me as a human shield, but like, all right, cool. Thanks. I'm going to go live it up. Thanks for dying. <laughs> right? <laughs> cool. I'm going to go on a little vacation, like buy a yacht. It's going to be great. Got a hot cabana boy. Oh, girl. Cabana boy for life. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> the inquest into Jimmy's death took place on June 12th, 1935. But... Without Reginald's testimony, the case against Patrick Brady fell apart due to lack of evidence. Patrick's lawyer argued that the evidence was circumstantial at best and that technically an arm did not constitute a body and that it was completely possible that Jimmy Smith was still very much alive, just minus an arm. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Which like, okay, that's, I mean, I don't think that happened, but that's a fair argument to be reasonable. Totally. Yeah. The inquest lasted only a day and a half. Due to a lack of evidence and witness testimony, Patrick Brady was acquitted of Jimmy's murder, but was arrested on forgery charges as soon as he walked out of the courthouse, which I find particularly hilarious. I'm not going to lie. Eventually, it came out that Jimmy Smith had been a police informant. There it is. Right? Charmingly known as a fizzer or fizz gig in early 20th century Australian slang, and had snitched on a young man named Eddie Wyman, one of the most dangerous criminals in Sydney. As a result of the information that Jimmy gave to the police, Wyman and one of his accomplices were caught red handed writing a bank. Though Wyman was never formally linked to the murder of either Jimmy or Reginald, it's possible that he had ordered their deaths to maintain their silence. Wyman was eventually shot dead during a gangland quarrel by the notorious gunman Chow Hayes in 1945. For the next 30 years, Patrick Brady steadfastly maintained his innocence in Jimmy Smith's murder until he died at Concord Hospital in Sydney on October 18, 1965, at the age of 76. Mm. The rest of Jimmy's body was never found. Yikes. I know. And had that shark not been caught and placed in captivity, it's likely that we never would have known what had happened to Jimmy Smith, and he would have remained just another unsolved missing persons case, which is absolutely fucking bananas. Now, story's over, but I do have a little PSA, because I know sharks seem very scary, and we have all been deeply deeply traumatized by Jaws over the years. I get it. Fuck you, Steven Spielberg. Just kidding. I love him. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You're amazing. You're amazing, but also sharks, they're fine. Thanks. Thanks for the uh, psychological trauma. Appreciate it. But when you really look at the numbers, you realize that humans are the real terror here. 10,000%. Girl, because while sharks kill about 12 humans a year, Humans kill over 11,000 sharks per hour. It's estimated that 100 million sharks are killed by humans every year. This is why we fucking can't have nice things. Don't be a fucking asshole. What the fuck? What the fuck? Girl! Although that number may be anywhere from 63 to 173 million. And... One third of open ocean sharks are threatened or near threatened with extinction due to overfishing. Guys, stop. Girl, thank you. Listen to Monique. (laughs) I mean, normally I would say don't, 
But in this instant, do stop. Don't fuck with sharks. And yes, sharks are my top three irrational fear of dying by shark attack. But if I do, it's because I'm in the shark's fucking home. That's why. Yes, you understand. That's fair. That's where they live. I'm in their home. And they're like, fuck you. You don't belong here. And I'll be like, I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm getting out. Thank you. I appreciate your time, sir. Please let me get out. If not, I will take the consequences (laughs) of my actions. That's fair. That's very fair and reasonable. And in case you didn't know, sharks have lived on Earth for 450 million years. They literally predate trees. And they have survived not one, but four mass extinction events. And yet, we're the thing that will most likely drive them to extinction. So just remember, kids, you're far more likely to be killed by a human than a shark. And that is the story of the case that became known as the Shark Arm Murders. That was amazing. Yes, human beings are pieces of shit. Yeah. I cannot handle the story for one fucking second. Girl, I know. I was like, as soon as the shark fucking regurgitated a human arm, I was like, sold, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Like, hi, cancel my appointments. This is what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then when I found out that the bullet literally didn't kill him and it just like flattened against his forehead, I was like, oh. He was like, ow. Yeah. I was like, oh. like Ow. Like if you got like a fucking splinter. Doubly sold. I can't. Ridiculous. So ridiculous. So apparently it's Shark Week. Happy Shark Week, guys. Happy Shark Week, kids. And be cute to your sharks. Like you're in their fucking home. Yeah. Right? Respect them. These are apex predators who fucking have been around longer than trees have been around. 10,000%. Like if you were home and then like 40 people showed up being like, we want to party. You'd be like, what the fuck? And that's fair. That's how sharks feel. Yeah. Thank you. So like be cute. Exactly. Don't, don't fuck with a shark. I'm obsessed with this story and I'm not going to get over it for a minute. Girl. As your stories are wont to do to me. That's my goal. Yeah. Girl, your story was awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. All the bangings. Amy, thank you for your story. Thank you for being the magnificent, wonderful human being you are that I don't deserve. And somehow you came into my orbit and and agreed to do this bizarre show with me. Girl, same. I will never, ever, ever be able to express to you enough how much I love you and appreciate you. But please know that I do every second of every day. Girl, same. All the feels, you know. Thank you so much to all of you who listen. If you don't follow us on the gram already, you can find us at another fucking horror podcast. You can find me, Monique Sanchez, at Pin Up Girl Mo. You can find me, Amy Traden, at Lobotomy, and that's the thought, period, Amy. Every sixth episode, we do a true listener tales episode where we read your crazy stories. If you have a crazy story or you just want to say hi, please email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Guys, we're so obsessed with you. Unfortunately, this week is a reminder to tell the people that you love that you love them because none of this shit's guaranteed. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.